0: You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and Nijay Gupta.
1: Well, welcome back to Slow Theology. A.J. and Nijay here. We are beyond excited for our conversation today. It's actually our first interview. It's all downhill from here, folks. Uh, We have um, the one uh, and only uh, renowned NT right New Testament scholar. Today, we're going to talk about his uh, new book that has is on its way out uh, on the book of Romans. Tom, um, funny moment in my life: um, I have only once ever stolen somebody's ID to get into an event. Uh, it was not a bar; it was not a pub. Uh, Twenty years ago, my wife Quinn and I were. Uh, in Massachusetts. And a friend of mine, uh, we stole his ID to get into a lecture hall to hear you give a talk at Harvard University. And so (laughs) basically, at the end of the day, um, I'm willing to break all the laws to get uh, into the room to be with you. Uh, Nijay and I are so grateful for your work, who you are, and your scholarship and mind for the church. Thank you for serving the body of Christ in the way you have.
2: Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Yeah. With or without a ticket, <laughs> there you go, there you go.
1: Well, we want we want to honor um, the time that we have with you, and you have uh, a forthcoming book out uh, in the in the near future. I'm not entirely sure if it's at uh, the press quite yet, but it's on its way. Um, and we want to talk to you about the Book of Romans today. Uh, the Book of Romans is. Man, maybe there is no book that has had writing that has had more impact on the church than this. Augustine, uh, Martin Luther, uh, John Wesley had stories with the Book of Romans. Their life was utterly transformed by this this writing. Why, 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 Tom, has this book in the history of the church had had the impact
2: it has? It's a great question because, of course, Paul wrote um, several letters. And they each have their own particular flavor and their own particular punch. Uh, I think that the Romans, that the reason for Romans being uh, so important is because I think Paul uh, quite deliberately took great care over it. Um, When we study Romans, It's unlike the other letters in that it divides quite naturally into four sections, each of which is significantly different. In the book and elsewhere, I've likened it to a musical symphony in four movements, where you can tell that the movements belong together, but each time, oh, we're going in a different sort of pace now, and then we're um moving into different territory and new themes coming in, but yet it's all somehow woven together and that's that's a, a fascinating thing. My sense is that Paul had had these arguments going round and round in his head for a long time. I mean you know he would be discussing things um in the synagogue or in somebody's lecture hall or whatever or on the road with companions and I think he'd had in mind for a long time that he would pull it together in a coherent way and then send it on to Rome ahead of him, so that because um, he wanted to make Rome his new base. But I think that the, the circumstances of that meant that he's writing at a more, if you like, a more exalted level. Um, it, it, it's got sort of literary style of its own, it's almost making its own literary genre as it goes along. I was talking to a uh, Uh, a well-known North American scholar a few years ago about this, who, who, who agreed with me that Romans is unique in this respect, and then said, but why did that happen? And we spent a happy dinner time talking about what was Paul trying to do with that? So, Um, It doesn't surprise me that Romans has had that impact. Of course, you could say, and in some traditions it would be true, that the Gospel of John has also had just a massive impact on the church in some ways. And the fact that we highlight Augustine and Luther and Wesley, and you might have added Karl Barth as well, um, as people who have been so influenced by Romans, I I want to say, well, yes, yes. That's fine. They are great teachers and I honor them, but they all belong in a particular kind of sequence, which comes to be the sort of Protestant sequence. And part of the puzzle about that is that actually Romans, if you're not careful, gets cut up into its different pieces and never quite put Mm. back together again. It's been one of the problems of the church in the Western world that it's seen Romans 1 to 8 as, here's the book about how you get saved and go to heaven, Mm. and then 9 to 11 is, well, here's this odd bit about the Jews, and then 12 to 16 is, um, that there's some practical instructions and ethical discussions towards the end, and we kind of dismiss them. But actually, Romans as a whole is much bigger bigger and more coherent and supple than that. And mm. I think I think the church is actually still waiting for Romans as a whole to have its whole impact. So who knows? Who knows?
0: Great opening. Um overview of the interesting things about Romans. I want to get right into this book because it is a wonderful contribution to your overall scholarship. First of all, for those who are listening or watching, um, Professor Tom has done a lot on Romans. Um, I'm thinking all the way back to Climax of the Covenant with some of your articles and essays, definitely published articles. Your, I think, pretty, pretty meaty commentary on Romans in the New Interpreter's Bible, and then your For Everyone series. Uh, and then in Paul and the Faithfulness of God, which I have here, so I see, displayed yes, probably on yes. my bookshelf, <laughs> um, you know, Romans plays a big role in that. Um, and now you decided to write again. You know, some people, they write their whole career on the same subject. You co- you cover quite a vast set of subjects across the New Testament studies and, and Christianity. But you're returning again to Romans, and For anyone that doesn't know yet, the book is really focused on Romans chapter 8. So in a minute, I'm going to ask you... Uh, why focus on Romans chapter 8 and how do you know it's the heart of Romans? Because <laughs> scholars debate oh, is it Romans 1 verses 16 and 17, or maybe 12 verses 1 and 2, or you could pick something out towards the end of Romans 9 through 11 has caught interest in the last 20, 30 years. So it's interesting to me that, you know, I think in the book you refer to this as a short book, it's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> two over 200 pages. Um, on Romans 8, so let me just ask you, what do you mean by the heart of Romans? And how did <laughs> Have you always yeah. thought that Romans 8 was the heart of Romans, or is this a newer kind of discovery?
2: I, I've never quite expressed it like that until quite recently. But, um, I mean, the, the, the pragmatics were that I was doing some—I'm teaching part-time now in retirement at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And so I needed to do a series of eight Bible expositions um, a couple of years ago, I guess— and I just suggested, really, as a jeu d'esprit to the principal, do you know what, it'd be really fun to take Romans 8 and work through it inch by inch, because most people most people don't go through it absolutely phrase by phrase and word by word. And he said, yeah, great idea. And uh, use that as a way of showing us how to read Paul in general. So fine, OK, that's what I was trying to do. And so having done that, I then developed it for other lecture series that I was doing, and, and it, it grew. But The reason why I I don't think this is actually arbitrary um, is that, as I say, Romans comes in four movements, 1 to 4, 5 to 8, 9 to 11, 12 to 16. And though they all balance and interweave, there is a sense in which Romans 8 stands right there in the middle of the letter. Um, This is what he's built up to. And in a sense, everything else follows from it. So that Romans 8 um, covers this extraordinary range of topics. I mean, you could list the, I think I do in the book, list the topics mm. of, of general theology, but from from who God is to the righteousness of God, to uh, Jesus, to his death and resurrection, to the work of the Holy Spirit, to our death and resurrection, to the challenge of suffering, and particularly ethics, and then particularly the the, the, the whole cosmic vision, the new creation, mm. and and also the way in which Paul is drawing on so many different bits of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Hebrew and or Greek scriptures, because he's using, using them both, I think, the way he weaves together the Psalms and the prophets and so on, and brings it together in a climax in 831-39, to where he quotes from the Torah and the Prophets and the writings, and when a Jewish writer does that, and Paul only does that two or three times in his letters, that that is a sort of way of underlining this okay. is really where it's landing, and here's Torah, prophets, and writings, Q.E.D. So I think there is a strong sense of Romans eight as, okay, we've now said it, this is the heart of everything, and now we can address the questions that follow from that. So I stick by the title, um, even though of course it was one that appealed to the publishers for no doubt other reasons. <laughs> Tom for years you you served um in in did pastoral work and I'm, I'm i'm no
1: doubt you likely continue to do that relationally with the people in your sphere and your circle. one of the themes of Romans eight that has for me um been uh, central to at least my own spiritual life has been the 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 groaning side of Romans eight the uh, creation groans we are self grown but the spirit groans as well. Hmm. put yourself um in the shoes of somebody in a local church who is walking through. Um, immense pain and suffering. What 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 does it mean to consider the
2: fact that the spirit groans as well? Why is that important for Paul and for us? A great question. I, I I hoped we would get to that sooner or later, and we've got to it sooner, which is fantastic. Um, first thing to say, I think when Paul is talking about the groaning there. I think this is a deliberate allusion to the children of Israel in Egypt in slavery, uh, waiting for God to rescue them. And it says God heard their groaning and then came down to call Moses, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and and set in train the events of the Exodus. Because the Exodus motif is there right through chapters six through eight, and particularly eight, that when Paul is talking about uh, the, the the vocation of the Christian from verses 12 to 30. And um, there's an awful lot of Exodus, that we are the Exodus people, we're on the way. But now, and it's kind of paradoxical, we are we are still in Egypt in one sense, even though in another sense we've come out of Egypt. But I think then that sequence that Paul has from roughly verses 23, 4 on through to, to seven. Um, about the groaning of all creation and then the groaning of the church and then the groaning of the spirit. This has long fascinated me and something I I think I first worked out way back in 1992 when the first Gulf War was going on. And I was preaching about that and took this text and, and thought about it in terms of help. The whole world is going into a convulsion about this, what's going to happen? And of course, it happens again and again. And now we've got the extraordinary convulsion going on in eastern europe in in the ukraine and all sorts of other wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff is very is very important for us to grapple with because so many western christians i think assume casually whether because they've heard somebody saying that um you know history has now ended and everything the, the world is just going to be a nice comfortable place from now on as if But uh, then it's quite a shock when suddenly the world isn't a comfortable place. And Mm. in any case, their life is not comfortable. And somebody they are very close to gets sick and dies, or some terrible disaster happens, or the family business goes bust, or whatever it is. And then many Christians think that, that this means something has gone terribly wrong, and maybe it's my fault because I wasn't a good enough Christian or didn't say my prayers, or something like that. And what Paul gives us here is a mature biblical theology of lament, it's very interesting mm. that he's alluding to Psalm 44 which says that God knows the secrets of the hearts and Psalm 44 is the one where the psalmist is saying um, yeah our fathers told us that you were always good to them and things always worked out but that's not how it's going on with us now so please will you sort it out and do something about it arise help us save us and Paul quotes 44 later on in the chapter when he says for your sake we are being reckoned as sheep for the slaughter that that's a quote so he's got 44 in his head, along with many other bits of Scripture. And and it's as though he's saying that that the call to lament is one of the church's primary calls. Mm -hmm. Actually, lament is a mode of worship, because when you worship God, the Creator, and then you look and say, um, but the world is in a mess— when you bring that into the presence of God, the creator, if he wasn't the creator, if he was just some God who'd done it and then run away somewhere, there wouldn't be anything to lament about. We'd just have to shrug our shoulders, uh, or like the Epicureans say, this is just how it happens, or the, or the Stoics, it's sort of all fated. Um, but the Christian says, no, we believe in God, the creator. Therefore, it is our primary task with mm. the Psalms in our heads and our hearts to come to him in lament One of the things I worry about with the contemporary church is that there's often so many happy praise songs. There's nothing wrong with being happy and singing praise songs, but that many churches don't sing the lament psalms or Mm -hmm. don't sing lament Mm -hmm. songs anymore. Whereas, as we know, in every congregation, there are many people hiding secret sorrow who are longing for somebody to hear their lament and aren't sure how to express it. So the way it works is this. That this is the Christian's vocation. It's not just something we do on the side, that God wants Christians to be at the place where the world is in pain, so that in them, God, by his Spirit, may be at the place where the world is in pain. This is, if you like, incarnational pneumatology, that just as God in Jesus came to the place where the world is in pain, you know, to this day, the Middle East is where the great tectonic plates of culture clash together. No surprise, that's where God comes in person and gets crucified. But now... God comes by the Spirit to dwell in our hearts, not just to make us happy or or guide us or whatever, though both of those happen as well, but because God wants to be lamenting at the heart of his world. And the way he wants to be lamenting Mm -hmm. at the heart of his world is by coming in the person of the Spirit to be at the heart of where the world is in pain. And so then in 8.28, and I do this revisionist understanding of Romans 8.28, because, you know, we all learned Romans 8.28 in Sunday school, God works all things together for good to those or for those who love God. That's not what it means. Mm -hmm. And I quote some of my students in the book who've nudged me into saying, no, that's actually look up the words in the Greek, God works with Those who love him, that's the people who've got Mm. the Spirit working in their hearts, um, in order to produce the good things that he wants to do. Because this whole passage is not about salvation. That's taken for granted. That's the larger framework. It's about vocation, granted salvation. Mm. Now, who are we called to be? We are called to be genuine humans, indwelt by God's Spirit, and hence to be the place where God's groaning and lament. Can happen, mm, so mm, I could go on about this all day. But that's—I mean—it's a great question. It's quite a long answer, but I think it's a really, really important, central, and vital point.
0: That leads actually to a question I really wanted to ask about. You know, w- one thing I love about this book is you talk a little bit about. I'm not going to say you changed rem- your mind, but you had some fresh thoughts on glory specifically, and then tied into, I love the work you do here on inheritance, because it's always puzzled me when it comes to inheritance. Why is it so important we're heirs if God never dies, right? Because in a, in a modernistic notion, an inheritance really is about transfer of money when someone dies, mm-hmm. sure, or possibly sure. property. But you have a whole bigger uh, set of theological discussions around what you just mentioned, vocation. So first, can you talk about how your thinking has changed or advanced in the last let's say fifteen years since you wrote your Romans, your big Romans commentary, yeah, and yeah. specifically then on galatians uh, or sorry, on glory and inheritance yeah, and yeah, vocation.
2: yeah. actually do you know it's it, astonishingly, it is twenty years since that uh, new interpreter's Bible commentary came out. Wow, where did those twenty years go? I don't know <laughs> but two major things. Have happened there, one of which is what I loosely call temple theology, which, again, I really wasn't into when I wrote that Romans commentary. But then I started reading um, people like John Walton on how the, the temple and creation in the Old Testament, John Levinson from Harvard. I started reading people mm-hmm. like Greg Beale, the temple and the church's mission, and seeing creation itself as the cosmic temple with the image at its yeah. heart, then seeing the tabernacle and the temple Exodus 40, 1 Kings 8, as the small working models of new creation, that God is putting this little model of creation into his world. Israel is there to be the people in whose midst that happens Mm. because God is not saying, okay, everything's gone wrong. I'm getting out of here, going back to heaven and I'm going to call certain people to come and join me in heaven. God is saying, no, the project continues, but here's how it's going to work. We're going to work within the world to plant my presence, my name, in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And then, of course, there's a big hiatus. What happens after the Babylonian exile? Well, they rebuild the temple, but there's no sign ever that Yahweh has come back. And the New Testament writers declare in one way after another after another by the texts they use and the stories they tell, this is how Yahweh has come back to his temple in the person of Jesus and the person of the Spirit. And for for me, in Romans 8, one of the great breakthrough moments was seeing about the Spirit dwelling within you and recognizing the language of indwelling as being the language of Yahweh coming to dwell in the temple. And this means that the church, and forgive me if I say this a few times because I say it now wherever I go, the church is called to be as the new temple, the small working model of new creation. And that idea of vocation, spirit-given vocation of the church as the true temple, you see, we've ignored this because in the Protestant West, which is where most Pauline scholarship has happened, we haven't wanted to know about the temple and the tabernacle too much because it's a bit too Jewish. And if we allowed it on stage, it might sound a bit too catholic and so protestant Mm. scholarship has used it just as a miscellaneous metaphor but in fact it's this vivid alive thing about god coming to dwell on the earth now that leads straight into glory and here i'm between two dear old friends, one, uh, Kerry Newman, who's now working with Fortress Press, who wrote his dissertation on glory. It's a brilliant piece of work all about the glory of God and the the weight of this glory and God revealing his glory, et cetera, et cetera. And then my former student, Haley Goranson-Jacob, who's now teaching in Whitworth um, College in in Washington State, um, who wrote about the glory as in Psalm 8, where it's the glory of the humans, that we are made little lower than the angels to be crowned with glory and honour with all things put in subjection under our feet. And I think Romans 8 is where those two themes come together. We are the true temple so that when the Spirit dwells within us, as Paul argues in 2 Corinthians 3, we are the bearers of the divine glory, although we have that treasure in earthen vessels, as he says in chapter 4. Simultaneously, this means we are genuine humans at last, and so we are gifted vocationally with the glory which is the stewardly vocation over God's world, exactly mm. Allah Psalm 8. And somehow those two belong exactly together. It's like, if you like, in traditional dogmatic terms, the divinity and humanity of Jesus belonging together. So now the divine glory comes to dwell within us to enable us to be genuine humans, which means to be the ones who are reflecting God's sovereignty and wise stewardship and gentle care into the world. So mm. I think both of those are vital for what's going on with glory in Romans, particularly when he gets to the end, those he justified, them, he also glorified. The vast majority of readers, commentators, preachers, et cetera, see that as being, if you're justified by faith, that means you're going to heaven. Glorification does not mean going to heaven. The Christian's destiny inheritance is not heaven, it's the whole renewed mm. creation. Mm. As in Romans 4, God promised Abraham that he would inherit the world okay how does that happen well romans 5 to 8 tells you <laughs> i
1: could go on but beautiful, absolutely beautiful a- actually tom I, you know part of our our theme in this podcast uh, slow theology is that we um really are actually trying to help serve people that have walked through seasons of deep doubt even yeah. deconstruction and attempting yeah. to really kind of put the pieces back together again in their faith i, I have a two part question for you right. um, n- number 1 um would be what what is one thing in romans you still lose sleep over you you don't you haven't worked out <laughs> i like that and and like second that. secondly when you come across theological or biblical issues that you lose sleep over what is the christian way to walk through those those questions
2: i'll take them in the reverse order if i may Whether because somebody told me this when I was very young or whether I worked it out for myself, I'm not sure. But I remember when I was at seminary, which is 50 plus years ago, realizing that I was getting all this stuff coming at me from lectures and the books that I was reading. And there's no way I could put it all together. And I realized that it, it, it actually, from one point of view, obviously one was trying to put things together. But from another point of view, there was no way I was going to put it all together in the space of two years in seminary. And so I developed the the belief that what, what to do is that here's a question. I don't know how that goes with this. I do not understand how that text fits with this one, whatever. I will mentally put it on a shelf at the side of my room, a shelf which I can see. And every so often, I will, perhaps every week or so, I will pray about that issue. And I'll just say, Lord, I'm really puzzled about that. I presume it does make sense. I'm not sure quite how, but um, there it is. I don't want to be unfaithful and say, therefore, I'm giving up the whole faith or I'm giving up Mm. discipleship or whatever. That would be stupid because I'm still only young, but... Please, I'd like to be able to make some advance on that. And then I found gradually, bit by bit, well, sometimes it was quite quick. Sometimes within a few weeks, I would turn a corner literally or metaphorically. And I'd say, oh, of course, it's because he's <laughs> saying this and this and this. But sometimes it was much more because as I was reading and thinking and praying in wider circles, I was coming across all sorts of other things. And I would suddenly realize, oh, if that's how that works that would explain what was going on in that Mm. passage that was so puzzling. And and you can't hurry that. One of the things I've learned is that that you can't force the pace, because it's a matter of growing and maturing, I hope maturing, um, and, and developing and perhaps deepening in oneself to the point where things which were awkward before now make sense. It's rather like a Um, uh, a boy inheriting clothes from his older brother and they don't quite fit and it's awkward Mm. and they flop around a bit. And the answer is you need to grow up and fill out a bit and then you'll find that the clothes fit (laughs) perfectly well. I've got the opposite problem at the moment because of my rheumatoid arthritis. I've had to lose about £30 in the last year, and so my clothes are now flapping and flopping around me again. Um, So that that has been a kind of golden rule for me. And one of the key issues when I was in my mid-20s doing my doctorate was the relationship between Galatians and Romans. that Galatians seem to be so negative about Torah and Romans seem to be so positive about Torah. How can these be? And many scholars are saying, oh, well, Paul just changed his mind. And and I was prepared to countenance that, but there were passages that didn't quite fit and the other scholars I was reading that were trying to make them fit didn't quite work. And then one day I read Romans 10 differently. Uh, to the point where Paul is saying, they, that's the Judeans, have a zeal for God, but it is not according to knowledge because they are seeking to establish their own righteousness. Mm -hmm. And I suddenly thought, supposing this means not a moral righteousness of good works, but a covenant status which is for Jews and Jews only. And Paul is saying, no, because what God has done is for Gentiles also. And I remember then going back home that night and sitting up in bed reading Galatians in Greek and thinking, it works. It works. This is going to work. And that was one of those moments where the thing I'd had on the shelf for a long time suddenly came together. And that was, of course, around the same time as the so-called new perspective was was getting off the ground. And and this was my my way into that. So, um, you're that you So all of that's going on. Your your second question has to do with. Um, bits of Romans which still give me sleepless nights. I, I, that would be metaphorical sleepless nights because there's there might be some things that give me sleepless nights, but th- thankfully it isn't Romans anymore. Um, but there are passages in Romans 2 where I think I've got it sussed, and then I go back and I'm not quite sure. Romans 2, 14 to 16, and uh, the people who maybe uh, are thinking that they're going to be excused or accused or whatever. Are these Christians? Are these Jews? Are these Gentile, wise Gentiles or, or whatever? And and each time I go back, I think I've got it sorted out. And then I read another commentator and I think, hmm, maybe I need another look at that. So some of that stuff needs to be, needs to be sorted out again. Um, I would love to be able to convince the people who disagree with me about the end of Romans 11 that that I really am right on this, and mm-hmm. the fact that I don't seem to be able to um, doesn't exactly worry me because I know wh- where they're coming from. But I would like to be able to do that better. Um, those would be those would be obvious bits, I think. I, I one day I suppose I ought to work back from Romans eight into Romans seven and. F- and work out more fully the insight which I just drop in there, which somebody wrote an article about 10 years or so ago, about when Paul says that um, the, the the other law is taking me captive, the word he uses, eikmolotizonte, is the regular Septuagint word for exile. And as you probably know, exile is an enormously important theme for me in the way that the Second Temple Jewish world works. So the thought that Paul might there be Telling the story, the longer story of Israel, uh, making it his own, as well as the the story of Adam, etc. I would like to write all that out again and 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 work it all out because I think it really does work. So those th- those are those are for starters.
0: I love the way in this book that you walk through chapter by chapter how you get from Romans one to Romans eight. And one of the words you use frequently about Romans 8 is the word assurance, Mm -hmm. right? This is a chapter about assurance. And, uh, you know, AJ was telling you a little about our podcast and the listeners, a lot of people going through um, cynicism about Christianity. Um, They're looking at all the scandals in the American church. They're looking at, you know, Christian nationalism in the um, church and in America in general, Um And so there's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of concern about overconfidence in Christianity. And so would you distinguish between assurance and certainty? Because I think sometimes preachers want to say, you know, you need to have this 100% perfect certainty, which has no place for ignorance or doubt or lack of knowledge. I think you actually don't mean certainty when you say assurance. But tell us a little bit about what you mean by assurance, why Paul is supplying assurance, and what relationship assurance has to faith
2: and doubt. Yeah, it's great. Um, Assurance has often been used in the past to mean being quite sure that you will go to heaven when you die. And since, as I've said already, that's not actually the great story that the Bible is telling. The Bible isn't telling the story of how saved souls get to heaven. It's the story of how God comes to dwell with his people on earth to rescue them and to renew all creation um but the assurance then is not the brittle certainty that many philosophically minded people want to talk about today. And I think this is more of a problem in America than for us, because you still have quite a robust philosophical tradition in the rationalist mode. Um, And this comes through particularly in certain strands of uh, new waves of Calvinism. And you will know as well as I in better aspect what, what I'm talking about, as though you have to get all those loose ends tied up and then uh, unless you're just stupid or or arrogant or something you should be absolutely certain well it all depends what you mean by absolutely certain because certainty the, the word certainty uh, carries a certain subjective element to it And anyone who's been a pastor for any length of time knows that how people feel about their deepest beliefs can come and go with the weather, with Mm. the state of their health and digestion and so on, Mm. and especially with the outward circumstances of their lives. And so I want to say one of the things that's come to me through this is both that distinction between, which I like the way you make it, between assurance and certainty, because assurance is looking away from oneself Christian assurance, and looking to Mm. what God has done in Jesus, Mm. what God is doing by the Spirit, and simply casting all our care onto God himself. And uh, for me, ultimately, the resurrection of Jesus is the sheet anchor God raised Jesus from the dead. I tell the story at the end of the book um, uh, about a taxi driver once saying to me, um, uh, and I remember it as though it was yesterday, if God raised Jesus from the dead, everything else is just rock and roll, isn't it? And I thought, that's the sheet anchor. Um, and so we we go back to that again and again. And then if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he will raise your mortal bodies from the dead as well. That's Romans 8, 10 and 11. That is the assurance uh, of the ultimate rescue from death itself, not going to heaven, because going to heaven, you could easily leave your body behind, whereas resurrection means new creation and our re-embodiment within that. But I think the other thing which is going on in Romans 8, which became more and more clear to me as I was working through this project, is that Paul is writing to a very small minority Christians. You know, there's maybe 200 Christians in Rome at this time, we don't know for sure, but might be 300, might be 150, somewhere in that order. There are thousands of Jews in Rome, but there are, you know... There's a million or so people in Rome in general. Christianity is a tiny minority. And the one thing that people in Rome know about these Christians is that we hate them because they're antisocial and because they do bizarre things. They get together secretly and they have men and women meeting together. And we know what that means. And they have slaves meeting with free men. And we know what that means. This may be subversive, this may be revolutionary. And so they are the natural targets when Nero wants a scapegoat for the fire in 64. And they're going to be the natural targets for all sorts of things in, in the days to come. And so Paul is saying, in effect, and I think I do say this in the book here and there, that he he has in mind a house church which might be in a little room in the back of somebody's shop, meeting in secret, or a group meeting on the fourth floor of a rather dodgy tenement that might fall down or catch fire at any moment. And the, the sense of this is totally unlike... Christianity in the Western world, where we have large churches and fellowship groups and goodness knows what, it's the assurance that even though there are not very many of you and you may be poor and not doing well outwardly, the God who made heaven and earth is for you. If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know he is for us? Because he's given Jesus for us. How do we know it's for us? Because he's given his spirit to dwell in our hearts. So the whole thing comes together. And Because it sounds incredibly arrogant for somebody in Rome to say, the God who made heaven and earth is our God over against the great powerful gods of Greece and Rome, etc. But this is the assurance, and it's very practical, very much earthed in real down-and-out, below-the-tracks communities. That's what Paul is really aiming for, I think. Yeah. Tom, I have recently a student of mine actually came to faith um,
1: at the university where I teach, uh, put their faith in Jesus. Really exciting to see um, any young person, you know, begin to experience the the resurrection of Jesus. Um, Naturally, when somebody comes to faith, their first question is, well, what should I start reading? And that, of course, provokes a whole series of questions about how to read the Bible. If you were sitting with somebody who was going to endeavor in a lifetime of reading the Bible as you have, what are two or three little things you would say are the most important ideas, uh, postures of the heart, practices for reading the
2: Bible over a lifetime? Wow. I mean, we are all different and no doubt our reading strategies are all likely to be different. You know, I grew up in a house with quite a lot of books in and reading was a natural thing. I know a lot of people today grow up in houses with a lot of screens and very few books. And so um, even getting people to to settle down with a book and switch off the screens and not be distracted, that itself is quite a big thing to get around. But granted that, um, I, I would say that uh, it's absolutely vital to have the four Gospels flowing through the head and the heart. And by that, I mean, take time maybe once a month to sit down and read right through Matthew at a run or read right through Mark or Luke or John, um, and because it wasn't written to be read in little 10-verse chunks. You know, it's it's written as... As a book to be read straight through and let it make its impact and wash over you. But then, day by day, whatever else you're reading, and you ought to be reading the Old Testament, you ought to be reading the Acts, Epistles, and Apocalypse as well, but whatever else you're reading, read a little bit of the gospel each day. And each day, remind yourself that this is the story of the God who loved me enough to come and live in our world and die on my behalf. In other words, when we're looking at Jesus, we are looking at God. Jesus said, who has seen, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. Um, and, and, and that comes through so clearly in the Gospels. The danger with everyone from beginning Christians to senior theologians is that first they try to sort out God, and then they try to put Jesus into that picture mm-hmm. of who God might be. You can't do it, and the New Testament tells you not to. That he is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible, but we find out who God is by looking at the image, in other words, Jesus. So to have the Gospels flowing through day by day, I would say, is vital. The other thing is the Psalms. The Psalms are quite difficult for many people starting out, so find a good modern translation, and simply, whether it's a psalm a day or two psalms a day or whatever, Uh, I know of one religious order not far from here where they actually pray all the psalms every day. That's quite something. They spend a fair chunk of hours just simply so that the, the sisters in that community, the psalms are simply what they are breathing all the time as they're going about their daily work. And the psalms can be difficult. There are some bits which are spectacular and obvious and, and very comforting and exciting, other bits which are very dark and puzzling. But the psalms are our book. And we talked about lament before. And one of the ways to learn to be in God's world is to be psalm-praying people. So the psalms and the gospels, I would say, make a beeline for them. And whatever helps you to do that, modern translations, if you haven't got the Greek Greek and the Hebrew, which most don't, then make sure you've got at least two different translations which you can switch to and fro in case you think that this translation is fixed and unalterable, because no translations are. So so that's really important to get a variety of translations, but the gospel, I would say the Gospels and the Psalms. But then, goodness, where to start? I mean, um, if I swing my camera around, you'll see commentaries on the walls of my study um it's It's hard to know, and some of those are very simple. some of them are very basic and straightforward, and others are high octane academic stuff. I have tried in my own funny way to do my little New Testament for everyone series that's been quite fun. Some people I think find that helpful. John Goldingay has a parallel one in the Old Testament. I haven't used that much because I'm reading other stuff, but there are lots and lots of similar things, so if people are hungry to know more then there are lots of ways in but the personal reading and the other thing is when reading the gospels this isn't for everyone but many people find it helpful what the what the ignatian method does is to say Take the time, breathe deeply, imagine the scene. Here is Jesus coming into a village. Here's a woman with her only son. He's dead, and they're going to bury him. Now imagine the scene and and become part of the crowd. Go and join in with the crowd and look and watch and see what happens. Mm. And read the story as if you were a participant in that story. And then at a certain point, ask, if you dare, that Jesus, as well as doing what he's doing in the story, will turn to you and say, now, what about you? Where are you in this? Mm. It is remarkable, and the history of those who've used this method goes on and on and on, what happens when we take the time to allow Jesus to let us into the story and then to engage us in conversation. Another obvious story to do that with would be the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Why not just walk along with those two and listen to what Jesus is saying to you as you're downcast and wondering what on earth's going on, and have Jesus say to you, don't you realize this is how it had to be? Let me explain it to you. And when you do that, there is, you can't predict what's going to happen. It may, it may not be comfortable, but it will certainly be important and potentially life transforming. So that's just, just love that. Funny.
0: Uh, we are wrapping up. I'm going to have the privilege of asking the last question, and then after you answer, AJ will um, finish us out with a goodbye. Probably my favorite part of your book is the emphasis on love, um, which I think is hinted at in the title, Into the Heart of Romans. <laughs> and also, love is a prominent theme in Romans 5 through 8. I was just thinking of, I think it was Charles Cranfield who said, um, God is for us. Romans 8:31 is a concise summary of Paul's gospel. Um, I'm actually writing on the subject right now. I'm writing a, a, a theology uh, of Paul's theology of love. So I really appreciated that you drew this out of Romans 8. Um, so what I ended up see- what I end up seeing a lot is that um, love language is popular in Christian worship songs and um, kind of Christian radio. But intellectuals, um, Pauline theologians, tend to ignore (laughs) Paul's love language. And I thought it was brilliant for you to draw that out. Why is it so important to make sure that we are attentive to that at the center of Paul's uh, Romans, but also his theology, I feel like love is often neglected. It's put at the end of a theology in ethics or Christian yep, yep, life. Yep, yep. You do what I think is brilliant. You put it at the beginning and say this is actually the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, Tell yeah, us yeah. why. How that process of writing this has shaped how you look at Paul's theology wow. of love. Yeah,
2: it's 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 huge. I mean. There are bits of Romans 5 to 8 which don't mention love, but but love kind of bookends 5 to 8 because you've got it in 5.5 mm-hmm. in that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And, and then yeah. it comes back with a bang, of course, in the great climax of 8, 8.31 to 39. And one of the things that surprised me when I was doing that bit was... Um, thinking, well, he talks about the love of, of Christ, the love of the Messiah. And I thought, well, hang on, where does that come from? Do I know any Jewish texts which talk about the king as the one who loves his people? And okay, the king is their shepherd, but I don't know any Jewish messianic texts which say that when the Messiah comes, he he will be the man of love. And the answer must be that Paul's implicit Christology all the way through is about the love of God incarnated in Jesus. And so Mm -hmm. the theme of love for Paul, um, I mean, people used to play it off against justice. Um, I, I think of a dear Christian who now has gone to her rest, but once said to me, um, I don't really like Paul because uh, he's all about justice and righteousness. And I prefer John because he's all about love. And I remember saying, I think if you read Paul a bit more carefully, you'll find that Paul actually wraps love round everything. And that actually God's righteousness is his covenant faithfulness, which in Deuteronomy and the Psalms and Isaiah Particularly, is his love for Israel and the world. And then Paul's emphasis on God's faithfulness through the promises to Abraham for the whole world is the faithfulness of love and the loyalty of God's love, which, I mean, my my big book, as you know, you've got it there, was Paul and the faithfulness of God. And faithfulness is. Kind of chesed and emeth brought together in Hebrew, um, loving kindness and truth, the utter reliability of God. And it's because of God. And and God's love ultimately is a creational theme. It's about God making a world that is other than himself in order to cherish it and flood it with his own presence and, yes, his love. And then the call to be genuine humans, which is what Romans 5 to 8 is all about is a call to be people of love, and Mm. hence love being at the heart of ecclesiology, because if you're putting together Jew and Greek and slave and free and male and female, you can't just do that by willing it and by forcing yourself against your instincts to say, we're just going to live as a family whether we like it or not. No, it's got, as he says in Ephesians and Colossians, it's got to be saturated with love, and so it's Paul's vision of creation and new creation, which is a world of love rooted in God's love, expressed in human love, love for God and love for one another. And that's why to come back where we began, um, those verses, Romans 8, 26, 27, 28, uh, all things, God works all things together for good through those who love him. And those who love him is those who are standing at the place where the world is in pain so that the love of God may be there interceding, the Spirit crying out to the Father, and Mm. us who are in the middle of that being shaped according to the pattern of Christ, of the Messiah. And all comes back to that. Galatians uh, 2.20, my teacher George Caird used to quote it in sermons, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You can't get deeper than that.
1: Wow. Um, We've gone through this entire conversation without even mentioning the title of your book, Tom. It is called Into the Heart of Romans. We were so enmeshed in the conversation. We're so excited for this to come out and for your work. I know I want to collectively say on behalf of countless individuals whose uh, faith in Jesus has been bolstered because of the work that you do, uh, I was a college student wrestling with the Bible at undergraduate university and didn't know what to do with certain passages in the Bible and read your book, The Last Word, and one could that it um, got me through that season and my faith continues to this day. Thank you for all you do, Tom. It's been a joy to have you. Uh, God's grace and mercy to you. And heal
2: up. We hope you can the healing journey (laughs) continues on for you. Thank you very, very much. It's very good to talk to you both. And greetings to you and through you to all the people who are listening or watching or whatever. Thank you very much. Amen. Okay, bye-bye.